December 19th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Out of a wildfire disaster comes a rapid response for agriculture. University of Hawaii scientists mobilized to update our maps of what crops are in the ground across the state. Important data to help identify future fire risks. An observatory on the Big Island names its first Hawaii-born director. will hear his thoughts on balancing science and culture. And a comedy series set on Maui makes its live streaming debut, the story behind Moku Moku. Plus, heads up, deadheads, we've got the details behind an upcoming show honoring the Grateful Dead's Winterland Concert, marking its 45th anniversary. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Out of a disaster comes a stark look at where we fell short. A University of Hawaii professor of geology sought data about our agricultural fields following the Maui wildfires. He found that our statewide maps were outdated, at least three years old. Professor Chichen applied and received a grant of more than a quarter million dollars to update the state's agricultural maps. He'll take the next year using satellite technology and AI, artificial intelligence, to develop the capacity to prepare us for future disasters. Chen acknowledges it's a tall order to fill. So the aim is actually quite ambitious. So the, the initial motivation is try to kind of re, re respond to the fire, you know, see what the obstacle we're dealing with the fire after the fire. Uh, we need like up to data. So in the future, if a fire happens elsewhere and, you know, how we don't want to get into the same situation, it's kind of establish our, you know, develop capacity for the state to get prepared for any other hazard happen in the future. So especially related to agriculture. And so anything we need to do, like if the agriculture is affected by hazard, we still need those kind of data. And the data has to be up to date. And when we deal with Somali fire, the data was the last data available for the island, but it was produced in 2020, which is like three years ago. So this is a problem because you know, Hawaii agricultural actually changed kind of uh, rapidly, very, very, very dynamic. So if we don't have very accurate uh, crop data, like what is going on, the, uh, growing in the field, and then we had a problem, we will have a problem to do assessment, like which what kind of uh, crops has been affected really by the fire or any hazard. Our goal is develop um, a capacity to create, uh, produce map for every year for the whole state. So this, which is uh, one of the goal of the project. So it's quite ambitious. And so what tools do you plan to use in order to for, for you to collect this data? You know, Hawaii has so many different islands and we need to cover the whole state. And uh, we want to find some tool to map those, all this area, such kind of big land, uh, yet at a low cost. So we have to use in satellite imagery. So that's one of the main data sources. But have the data itself is not sufficient. You know, the data is there. If it's not be processed, we cannot turn the data to use of for information. So then we use like artificial intelligence. We use the AI to automate that process of uh, turning the images to useful map. So that's the kind of the, the main workflow, the methodology we're going to use. And then you're also reaching out to all the stakeholders involved in this. Yeah, we have the satellite imagery, which is kind of free. NASA has uh, a couple of satellites uh, available, and uh, and the European Space Agency has another satellite that we're going to use, which is called a Sentinel. Uh, so this data is free to use, and the AI, we developed the AI tool, but have this tool is not sufficient yet. Uh, we still need to, you know, the AI needs some, like, is a mathematical model, needs some data to train the model. So the model will only, will only work if we have good data to train the model. So 
that's the place we have to get involved uh, with the different uh, local farmers agents organization to work with them to collect the data, gather data about what they're growing in the field. So again, this is another kind of ambitious component of the project because we can got to go to not go to Maui. Maui is the first step. We have to go to the other island, major island like Kauai, Oahu for sure, and also Big Island. So we need to gather like field data about what are growing on the field. So that's kind of one big component of the project too. So, and we need to uh, work with this farm organization to to kind of increase the efficiency of, uh, of collecting those data. You know, what happens already happens. So we have to like take lessons from those and to see what we can do in the future, get better prepared for the future. So luckily we can have this funding opportunity and we have some expertise at the UH and we also collaborate with the mainland institution like Colorado State University and also USDA, there's two scientists there as well to work together and to develop those tools, methodologies that we can be, uh, it can be used for, first of all, get a more updated maps for the state. So we have to update the crop maps to 2023 and we're going to continue to do the work for 2024. So we are going to update those maps to 2023, 24. Uh, so then because everything once the project is done we have this map but also we have the model so what we hope to do in the future is that we'll be able to apply the same model to this data the data is free right so the model has to be trained so we can in the future we hope uh, every year we'll be able to get an updated map for for agricultural uh, uh, in the whole state so anytime you know, anything happens in the future, so people can, you know, decision maker can take this data immediately and then combine with the, let's say it's still it's another fire happens from somewhere else, they can take the fire uh, data and then put it on top of those map we produced and they can do quick assessment to quickly determine what kind of crops have been affected the most, right? So how to, what kind of, uh, um, um, you know, they have to reach out to the specific farmer to to help them uh, do kind of a recovery work. Uh, so uh, the second uh, component of this project, in addition to uh, mapping the crops, is map fire. So fire has been mapped uh, in this project in the very high resolution. So like uh, uh, we call it like 30 meter by 30 meter is think about an image, you know, image consists of millions of pixels. Our resolution of the fire map will be fine, as fine as like each pixel is cover 30 meter by 30 meter on the ground, which is a better resolution than the existing map. So existing map available in the mainland or elsewhere, they usually the resolution is only up to like one kilometer by one kilometer. So for the fire like Lahaina, mm -hmm. maybe it's only one or two, three pixels. So not many. So I see. More detailed. More yeah, detailed, yeah. essentially. Yeah, exactly. Our map will be more detailed. And then, uh, so yeah. hopefully by this time next year, then we will have a blueprint and we will have data to help us become more yeah. resilient. Yeah, exactly. So the map will be produced, released, we hope to release every week or every two weeks. So in the future, in the whole state of Hawaii, there will be weekly map, bi-weekly map of fire at a 30 meter resolution right. for the whole entire state. So we are gonna have uh, this product finished for the entire year, mm -hmm. project year. And also we're going to uh, launch a app. So uh, an app that, you know, if you have a cell phone, you, you can, can just look it up. go to a website and then you will be able to see like weekly fire map on the whole, for the entire state. That was Chi Chen, a University of Hawaii professor at the Department of Geology and the Environment. He was just awarded a grant of more than a quarter million dollars to update and produce high-resolution uh, statewide agricultural maps. All this week, we are highlighting research underway to help in the Maui wildfire recovery.
This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavaiti. Today, we are testing your knowledge of the elipayo. The tiny bird is a member of the monarch flycatcher family, which includes magpies and larks. Three species reside in our islands, one on the Big Island, another on Oahu, and the third on Kauai. According to Hawaiian tradition, the elipayo is associated with several significant roles in culture and mythology. It's a bold and curious creature, quickly learning to take advantage of feeding opportunities when around human activity. The brown and white feathered bird also holds a significant daily distinction amongst native birds. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us what the elipayo does every day that makes it notable? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. Your carbon footprint. Plug in your lifestyle to an online calculator and instantly find out how much you are damaging the climate. It individualizes the climate crisis so you focus on yourself rather than the massive petrochemical companies pumping carbon into the environment. If that's politically convenient for big oil, it's because the carbon footprint concept was created in part by oil giant BP. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2... Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about access to state records. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today for our reality check. Hi, Stuart. Hello, Catherine. Well, your story made me gulp because I go to the Department of, uh, of Commerce and Consumer uh, Affairs all the time, you know, their website to look up businesses. But I had to gulp because there's a fee <laughs> that's associated with looking up some public records. Yes and no. So you can look up the public records by a business name if you do the business name search uh, for free. Uh, that functions on the website. And if you know the name of the business, you can look it up and voila, their registration will pop up and you can see the officers, executives, agent, etc. The problem <laughs> is if you want to look up a person and look up the name of a person and see what business entities uh, they're involved with. Uh, basically that you can't do. And the, the function is, is, is there, uh, DCCA can do it, but the public can't. And if the public wants to do it, the option is to subscribe to the database, uh, which costs $1,000 a month. Yeah, I mean, that just was stunning to me, $1,000 a month. Yes, and this came up uh, recently in regards to a Supreme Court justice nominee who's been confirmed since then. It turns out he has a connection. He was a director of a, an, a po political action committee that has donated more than a million dollars to Governor Green over the past uh, elections. And he, um, that was really not disclosed to the public, that connection during the confirmation and before the Senate, uh, not really disclosed in, in uh, Mr. Devins, Justice Devins now uh, resume submitted to the Senate. And when we asked the governor's office about it, they said, oh, look, it's in the DCCA registration. Well, the problem is there's no real way to find that DCCA registration. So this supposed disclosure was really not a disclosure at all. 
And so uh, Vladimir uh, Devins uh, was uh, a part of that uh, PAC, Political Action Committee, Be Change Now. Exactly. He was a director. And, yeah, so so you think, gee, in the, you know, interest of transparency, you know, why is there this fee? It's crazy. Right. Other states allow it to be done. It's free. Um, You can, again, search by a person's name and look up a public official and and see what business interests they have. You know, even, again, more than a dozen states we, we found have these, even uh, like Alabama um, has it. So you could look up, we just as a test, we looked up the highest paid public employee in Alabama, who is uh, Nick Saban, the football coach. And mm. you plug his name in and you see um, a dozen or so, maybe half dozen to a dozen companies that he and his wife are involved with there in Alabama. And then normally, too, when lawmakers, uh, you know, get into office, they have to file financial disclosures so you can track kind of their business interests that way. Yes, but those only really track income. So the person could be involved in an entity and not, uh, maybe it doesn't have income, maybe the person's a volunteer director or the income from the business doesn't meet the threshold where they have to start reporting yet, so there's no way to know. Also, sometimes you can you can sort of hide the um, ownership through LLCs and other things, so eventually it becomes really hard to start fully getting a picture of what the lawmakers, the uh, judicial nominees, other public officials, public employees, it's just very hard to check and do due diligence on the connections these folks have. Yeah, I know you check with the Watchdog Group, you know, Common Cause about it, and uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see uh, to see if there's any legislation that comes up this next session to try and change this. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. Again, this is a DCCA policy, so I'm not sure what the legislature can do. I suppose it could change uh, a statute governing DCCA and um, require it, but this is just a policy, and the DCCA chose when they set up the system. Again, we, we talked to the person who helped set up the system, and he said, look, this was an option, and there were people who were just very uncomfortable with allowing the public to do this kind of search. Yeah, so really interesting. So once again, opacity wins in Hawaii. Okay, well, we can only hope that changes. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. Observatory on Hawaii Island recently named Rich Matsuda as its next director. Matsuda was born and raised on Oahu and is the first Hawaii-born director of the observatory. An electrical engineer by trade, he's been on staff at Keck for over 30 years, joining the company after leaving Boeing in nine, uh, 1993. The conversations for us will be on a talk with Matsuda this morning about how his background and experience gives him a unique perspective of how astronomy fits in to local culture. I believe my background... Uh, being a local boy, you know, raised in in Hawaii, really does give me a unique perspective in terms of the values that I'm I'm grounded in, in terms of the importance of respectful relationships in the community, and also for this place in Hawaii that we we appreciate so much, and so my dedication to the excellence in science remains, but I think this being grounded in Hawaii really adds to the perspective and it'll really help Keck go into the future. I think it's an interesting situation that you're in as really an example of someone exploring kind of this intersection of culture and science. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on or, or expound on your thoughts on how culture and science can exist in balance here in Hawaii. So glad you asked me that question because I think one of the things that maybe has gone wrong over the, at least the recent history is sort of pitting culture and science as a dichotomy. Oftentimes in, in the media or in conversations, I've heard the term culture versus science. And that is 
something we really need to dispel. I believe that culture and science can, is really just two different ways of looking at nature to me. And these two different ways can actually complement and integrate with each other rather than be in this false dichotomy of opposition. And that's something I really try to bring to all of my conversations, whether it's in the astronomy community or in our local community, that the current science of astronomy from our contemporary view and then the ike kupuna from our Hawaii traditions can be looked at together at the same time and inform each other. I think a lot of the arguments in favor of of more science in Hawaii is centered around the idea that the first Hawaiians were very science oriented, you know, as navigators, as astronomers, that science was a big part of the culture. And there are many Hawaiians and many local people in science related industries that feel that they can work together and they're not in opposition to each other. It'll be an interesting journey for you as you move forward. Yeah, I agree. I think in order to get there, we need to do some healing of relationships, honestly. I think the situation around TMT and then the the protest movement that occurred created some really deeply held feelings on the subject of astronomy on Mauna Kea. And so I believe, you know, relationship building and, and seeking mutual understanding is the place we need to start and work really hard at. And we've been doing that over the last few years. And I believe, you know, it's really, first of all, for creating a healthier community that we have these kinds of dialogues. Hopefully that'll open up the space to explore this really interesting integration of the science and the culture. I've read that you've been instrumental in efforts to help Hawaii's astronomy community foster and strengthen community relationships. Can you talk about some of the work that you've done in that area? Sure. And it's a group effort among many in the community and in the astronomy community. But for me personally, one of the most impactful ways that occurred was being part of the Mauna Kea Working Group that the legislature established back in 2021 to look at a different way of managing Mauna Kea and sat in a group with seven Native Hawaiian representatives of the community and then myself representing Mauna Kea Astronomy along with some other folks. It was a working group of 15 and created, it was a safe space for exploring our sort of identities and where we come from and to learn and build mutual understanding and trust. And from that, a lot of relationships developed and more conversations between folks in astronomy and in the community. And so on that level, that was really impactful. On another level, our staff tries to really support and uplift the, especially the Waimea community, but the whole Big Island community. In terms of just nothing to do with astronomy, just being a positive, you know, the organization being a positive citizen in our community, working side by side with others to uplift a community. I know that you're an electrical engineer by trade, but what prompted you to venture into the astronomy field and more importantly, stay there this long? <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question. So a um, couple reasons. I mean, being in Hawaii was important. So my training came in aerospace, working for Boeing, and I missed home. And I think one thing that influenced me coming here was when I was a young boy, around 10 years old, we visited from Oahu and came to Hawaii Island. And I actually got to visit the summit of Mauna Kea. And my father had arranged a tour of the UH telescope up there at the time. And we never got to go inside, but I knew I was really intrigued by the you know, the look of the building, and I wondered what was going on in there as a young boy. So I think that was in the back of my mind. (laughs) And so when I had the chance to come work for Keck, it was kind of a, to fulfill that curiosity. But also I have family living here on Hawaii Island. So my sister and her husband and family live here. So it was a chance to come home, work on something really cool and be in Hawaii, reconnect with Hawaii and reconnect with family. That was 30 years ago. And I, I think the, the culture of Keck just being a, a great place to work, really interesting work. It's super engaging, you know, so 
we we operate the telescopes 24/7. The only time we don't operate at night is if we have bad weather, and that sort of drive to be on sky and enable these discoveries. It's it's really really engaging, and it's always kept me um, super motivated all through the 30 years. And kind of staying on the topic of jobs in the astronomy field, one of the points that is touted by TMT supporters is the mm-hmm. jobs the telescope will bring to the Big Island. Mm-hmm. But you're only the second Hawaii-born director of an observatory in Hawaii in the 50-plus years we've had observatories in Hawaii. Say TMT manages to get built despite the opposition. What should our young people interested in astronomy careers be doing now, so that we can fill the majority of those job openings with local people? Yeah, and I'll just say we don't have to wait for TMT. We have jobs at Keck and the other observatories that are filled and can be filled, and some of them are filled with local people. One thing for the public to understand is what Hawaii provides is the. Scientific capability for astronomers around the world to do their science and and their discoveries, and the types of jobs that requires vary from technicians to engineers like me to business people that you need to run any kind of organization, outreach folks, and then actually the number of sort of PhD astronomers needed to operate is relatively small among that collection. So all of those kinds of jobs are available. You don't. Only need to be an astronomer to work at a observatory like Keck. So whether you're in a trades program at the community college, whether you're studying electrical, mechanical, or software engineering at University of Hawaii, whether you're studying accounting or human resources or communications, all of those kind of skill sets are needed to run an observatory. One of my big passions. Is to create those pathways for local people, especially you know students and early career people, to find pathways in to work at the observatory. Rich Masuda, new director of Keck Observatory. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Mahalo. That was Hawaii Public Radio's Russell Subiano talking with Rich Masuda, the new director of the Keck Observatory on the Big Island. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of the Daily. Join us for an in-depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch the Daily Monday through Thursday at 1:30 here. On HPR One. In the wake of tragedy on Maui comes a new streaming series hoping to lift the spirits of Valley Isle residents. It's called Moku Moku. It's a reverent take on life in rural Maui that follows the unreal and hilarious lives of three friends and their struggles. With living in paradise. Here's the trailer. Oh, these are my grandfather's. Oh, I don't think you get your grandfather's jeans. Oh, get his chaps. But why never tell me the grandpa was in Paniolo? Your grandfather was a lot of things. None of them was good. Oh yeah. Like one of the village people. Now hurry up. <laughs> That guy, Kaika, he's state champ. Won like six rope tournaments. Yeah? But my grandfather was better. You think you're Paniolo? Jim's grandfather was a legend. Ho oh, oh. ho. You've been watching too much TV, boy. I can't do this. I'm gonna lose and see my grandfather's name. Ho oh, oh, ho oh. ho, You look like one. Rodeo prostitute. Thanks, mom. Kavika Hoke is the series showrunner. He's a native Hawaiian who grew up in San Diego, but 
his family, his roots in Maui. He talked with the Conversations' Russell Subiono about returning to his ancestral land to tell Hawaii stories. I like that idea of using comedy as an avenue to maybe talk about some issues that, that people are dealing with. How did you come to choose comedy as the way to tell this story as opposed to a drama or a documentary? I grew up as the angry militant Kanaka kid on the continent. What I realized like on mass as an American communication like issue, like we're in such a hard place all the time and everything that's going on with the economy, you've got a different wag every week in the news. You've got tons going on at home, but nobody pays attention to that because most local news is a news desert that's just pointing at national news because we've defunded. I mean, I'm already getting lost in it. But at the same time, like, how do you talk to all those people when when they don't want to be told about that, even though they're living, you know? Yeah. And so for me, I felt that comedy was the way of, of meeting the middle. Like, I always want to be able to laugh it off, even when it hurts the most, you know? But I always want to be able to talk about it. My family was really good about that kind of stuff. He was the kind of guy that just no matter how hard it hurt, no matter how hard the day was, you still had to bring up the next thing to work on for tomorrow. You know, you're, what's in the timeline for your kuleana. It's not just like, how does today solve today's problem of feeding your family? But how do you solve the bigger problem of like having a farm? So your family never has to worry, you know? And so it's that same thought with me about information and activating and being aware of what's going on in the world. And the world's in a really tough place. And I can understand why they need art to tell them a story, the hardest stories right now. You know, they need something to reflect on that doesn't make it hurt so much because they already how many people experience that just walking out of a flaming town, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but not to get too deep on that. It's just, it's really, we're in all of these struggling places, but we want to care about other people and we want to care about other people's problems. And so I think that with that and wanting to make other people realize how similar the problems can be at their base level and that we're all struggling, you know, we, we've definitely gone back in time socially. We've left, like 20 years so it kind of feels like somewhere between 1970 and 1991 to me these days right like we're dancing a really odd line of like what's acceptable what's not so before i get lost anymore on that that's really just to sum that up it's it's really uh, how do we how do we keep talking about it even though we don't want to but we want to it's such a weird thing you know it's a we're in such a we don't talk about bruno phase with so much of the world so we got to laugh about it. Talk about Your story takes audience beyond the beaches and away from the hotels to the hills of upcountry. And I feel like as we look over, you know, the last 10, 20 years of local filmmaking, it kind of in general has been moving that way where we're telling local stories, but we're telling local stories about places that maybe most people don't know so much about. Was that a conscious decision on your part to base your story at upcountry? Absolutely. You know, I've always defined Hollywood and storytelling, like filmmaking as a certain type of space race. I feel that Hawaii is still in its like dolomite phase of the space race because we're still holding on to what little we had during the gentrification of statehood. And then we just really we stuck onto that time capsule for like 30, 40 years. And then once we got happy with it, we kind of like glom some new things in. You get your, you get your Uncle Frank, you get your... You get your Andy Bumatai, you get all these great, like almost like a resurgence of like Hawaiian vaudeville performers into comedy. And then it starts bridging into small filmmaking. You end up with things like the Haumana or Kaleva. Kaleva was the one that really changed me. I was like, Hawaiians in space, bruh. Like that, I was just like in it. And it was a true like sci fi romance in that sense of like what's up here and what's in here. It's not just about Hawaiians went to space, it's where did we go in here, you know? And so I see those same things with like my partner and even Wind in the Reckoning. Like we only have so much to tell about the stories of the beaches without breaking our hearts these days. And I think that that's where a lot of the storytelling style was for the longest time. You get your like, you know, Hawaii 64, you got your like Juliana, like these hard boiled things that really just make a sit in it. I liken it to if we continued at that rate to make those same types of films, it would be like forcing your kids to listen to Waimanalo Blues on repeat. 
<laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's I'm like, and you know what? Every time it mixes in on my Spotify, I'm like, uh-huh. crank it up and cry. Uh-huh. And then like, okay, that was my dose for the week. Like, I'm better now. <laughs> like I had my cry. But like, if that's all we're doing, if like, I mean, I love a good like story that's going to make me have a good cry, a good song that does that, something to make me reflect. But I think that, you know, this next generation of filmmaker, we're recognizing we can employ the same feelings. We don't have to just dose on them so hard. Yeah. You know, we want to microdose every emotion instead of just going, this is the struggle. And it's like, no, no, no. We fought for all these other little feelings to have. So, you know, I think what, and what we're noticing really is the genre bending that's happening in Hawaiian storytelling, because when we talk story, it goes everywhere, you know? Yeah. And so to be able to tell a romance of the mind or the hearts or of a people without having to be like law and order procedural or really cheesy campy, because that was our choices for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like we had to be super serious or we had to be just the Kolohe, you know? And that, I think, changing that to being able to be a true storyteller that's not hindered by like, what's the stereotype of your people's storytelling? You know, I've been noticing this, a lot of cool native creators on the continent that are even trying to envision like, what does our culture look like in a hundred years? You know, how does your headdress change? How does your, how does your Oli change? How does just sitting down for, for dinner change over centuries, you know? And I think that right now for filmmaking to evolve in storytelling for Hawaii, like, I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of crazy changes. We're going into that range where like, Korea and New Zealand and all those guys, like they finally went like 10, 15 years ago. And they're like, we can do this ourselves. We don't, we don't need American Hollywood to tell us what to do. Let's just go, you know, and, and then that even caused Bollywood to reinvent itself. Right. You saw it making films you never thought it was going to make. And then look at how liberated at least China has become in the filmmaking sense. For all the struggle it's had, it actually found a common ground in cinema and it gave it so much power that like even the propagandists don't step in because they're like, no, bro, that's a good movie. Yeah. You can have that. That's a beautiful, bro. Mm-hmm. And that's power. That's power to be able to put together something that makes the Grinch make his heart grow two sizes that day and give back all the gifts. Like that's a win for free speech. That's a win for And we did it through song or we do it through, through laughs. You know, I think that that's really where we're going. We're going to show that we could do all the stories that America can do. And it's about time that we tried all these different genres and all these different storytelling techniques. Like, it doesn't have to just be hard-boiled. It doesn't just have to be a tearjerker. Can you tell our listeners how they can watch Mokumoku? You can watch Mokumoku directly at 808mokumoku.com. We are independently streaming and distributed. And by doing so, you're helping us keep the whole cachet in Maui. This isn't a Hollywood game. This was Maui. Maui put in like what I'm so proud about and what keeps me going. It's really the how much of my community stepped up and so blessed now in retrospect, because all of that happened before the fire. Like we only had like three more days to shoot after the fire. But Maui came together for us. And this was Maui's story and Maui's fun to have. And uh, every dollar goes back to Maui to make more Mokumoku and more stories like it. Kavika Hulk, showrunner for Mokumoku. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it, man. Mahalo, Russell. It was great. That was Maui filmmaker Kavika Hoke talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about his new original Hawaii comedy series, Moku Moku. Episode three of the six-episode series will be released this Friday. We'll have a link to where you can watch it on the conversation page of our website later today. Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Do American police have a management problem? You know, spending time looking at policing and realizing these aren't high-performing organizations of the sort that you would expect. And can a new project at the University of Chicago help? Within the first two days, I was in awe. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7. 
It is time to sing the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we introduced you to the native Ilipayo, the bird best known for helping canoe builders select the right koa tree to use for their seafaring vessels. The story goes the Ilipayo was considered an incarnation of the Hawaiian goddess Lea and would follow builders through the forest as they searched for suitable trees. If the bird pecked at a fallen tree, it was a sign the tree was infested with insects, but if it left a tree alone, it meant the wood was suitable for a canoe. Another reason the Ilipayo is significant is because it is the first native bird to sing in the morning and the last to stop singing at night, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And no one got the, got that right, so we stumped you on that one. Uh, if you'd like to suggest a, a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Calling all deadheads. We're cranking up the time machine and reaching back 45 years. The Stephen Inglis Project is bringing the Grateful Dead's 1978 Closing of Winterland concert back to life on its December 31st anniversary. The six-piece band will perform the iconic show in its entirety in two upcoming concerts. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Inglis to talk about the music that resonates through the generations. Happy to welcome you to the studio today with your guitar in hand. Mahalo, thank you for having me. I know you as a Kiko Alu, slacky artist. People can find you performing live seven days a week in Waikiki, various hotel venues. So it's with a lot of curiosity and interest that I'm discovering you've actually been tackling the vast songbook of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah. The group started out in the local San Francisco music scene of the 60s actually called the Warlocks, but they became the Grateful Dead after learning that another band <laughs> had the name the Warlocks. <laughs> you know, history might have been different, yeah. but their music, while rooted in bluegrass and rhythm and blues, would eventually shift towards psychedelic improv styles. So when did you become, when did you join that fan base? <laughs> and become a dead I can, I can pinpoint it pretty much exactly to when I was 16. So this is uh, 1992. You know, Jerry, this was kind of, I, I was lucky to catch the tail end of The Grateful Dead, and nobody had any idea how the music would live on so strong after he was gone and then The, and the Grateful Dead proper were gone. But, but anyhow, I was 16, and I'd already been turned on to uh, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, a lot, a lot of classic rock, but The Dead didn't quite get me right away. I never, it was heavy metal that got me into playing electric guitar. When I was a kid, I played classical piano, and then I was in the Honolulu Boy Choir, but I kind of got stubborn for a couple of years with piano and didn't do anything, and then electric guitar and heavy metal with Metallica and all that kind of stuff got me going at 14. My older brother, who is a very good and bad influence, you know how older brothers are, but he, he said, you gotta listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. So the classic rock stuff, I was like, wow, this is really cool. But he went back to visit my cousins on the East Coast one winter vacation. He came home with some live Grateful Dead albums and tapes, and uh, aided by some other sacraments, I listened to some of this stuff. I'm like, wow, it was something certainly different, and it just grabbed me. Jerry Garcia had a great quote. He said, oh, the Grateful Dead are kind of like licorice. Some people don't really like licorice, but the people who like licorice really like licorice. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> my, my understanding of the Grateful Dead, very organic. It's never the same. Right. So do you have a favorite track, or what are you going to be sharing with our listeners today? I have no idea, but I'm going to find out right now. <laughs> so totally not. in the ethos. <laughs> Yeah. What I think I'm going to do now, I have my acoustic guitar, and I do have an album that I did back in 2018 called Cut the Dead Some Slack. So I'll do some Kiho Alu style Grateful Dead for you here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is one of their most beloved poignant ballads. Uh, Call it sad, but it's it's, it's very up, very uplifting. It's a song that Deadheads just love. It's called "A Broke Down Palace." Works nice in the slack key style. So let's do that. Honey, there you 
that we're singing. Thank you. It's so nice to have live music back in the studio. <laughs> it's good to be back here. Yeah, thank you. Yes. You're playing acoustic today. For your concerts, you're going to be playing electric guitar and vibing it up with the different members in the Stephen Inglis project. Yep, yep. Won't, won't be doing that song, but that was a Grateful Dead song. But it would be very ungrateful dead to play a song that I'm going to play at the, the two concerts coming up <laughs> here. <laughs> but that one does work really good, uh, slack key style. Right. What is it about those Grateful Dead audiences that makes it so different and so unique? Probably the most concise way to, to put it is it's, it's, it's more like uh, going to church than entertaining, if that makes any sense. Like the, like the Grateful Dead weren't really, an, they weren't an act. Like, I mean, not putting down anything that you could call an act or the term, and not to use that disparagingly at all. But if you go see like a, a classic rock band, you're going to have a same set list for a tour, and you're going to see kind of it presented right. like, Ladies and gentlemen, you know, the, the, the fireworks, the introduction, and that's kind of more of a show. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. you look around, even the younger kids, like playing the Honolulu Dead Night, there's this whole college crowd, 18, 19, early 20s, who are rabidly into the dead and listening to live shows and, and collecting. And, and if you go to, you look at a typical room full of 20-somethings or anybody anywhere nowadays in a, in a club or a bar, you're going to see people, you know, drinking shots, taking selfies, and, and just that, that's just you know, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But you look around the room when we're doing the Honolulu Dead Nights and it's just a, there's not a single phone out. The eyes are closed. People are dancing. It's it's plugged into the music, so it's really they're really it's, present. They're present. They're they're there for the music, and and that that energy, 
like Garcia would say, he said, you know, the, the audience is just a, just as important a member of the band as the band is. So that's kind of the, that's what makes it different. So it, to me, what I'm hearing, yeah. basically, you're <laughs> in the moment and the music is just taking each individual to a place that is so personal and unique to them as right. they connect exactly. with the music right. Right. that you all are Right, playing. and it's conversational music. The whole thing about it is, of course, you have like the, the shorter songs and then like traditionally like the dead would like later in the first set they'd have at least one song where they'd really stretch out and start to really improvise and and the second set there'd be more of that and later on they had the the drum duet they called drums and then space space was just complete free form just straight up improvisation okay yeah so. and so steven looking at the end of the year you have some very exciting things on the horizon fill me in on your upcoming grateful dead concerts to end the year, what we have coming up, we have two nights. The 30th of December, we have the show is in Kihei Maui at the Kihei Charter School. It's going to be an outdoor show. And for this New Year's run, we are doing the 45th anniversary of uh, December 31st, 1978, which was the closing of the fabled San Francisco venue, Winterland. Hmm. The very last show they did there was um, Bill Graham presented The Grateful Dead and they played four hours plus of music, going out at midnight and finishing up around 6 a.m., you know, four hours, not including the breaks. <laughs> wow. So we're doing the same thing, but we're not starting at midnight. We're starting at 5 o'clock on Maui because it's, mm-hmm. it's an outdoor, it's a, at a school, and we have the curfew, and we're going to be playing the full. So it's, it'll be the sun will go down, we'll be playing under the stars. Okay. We're going to play four hours plus of music. But we're going to keep the breaks a little shorter than they did, and we're not going to play till the sun comes up. I see. But Hawaii Theater is going to be a 7 o'clock doors, 8 o'clock show, and we'll ring in the new year at midnight and probably play till 1. It's going to be a super, super good time. And if you're on the fence and, and are curious about The Grateful Dead, if you've got a friend who's saying, hey, come check this out, and you're on the fence, I'd say go. Come. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Nahoku Hanohano Award winner Stephen Inglis talking with HBR's Lillian Song. Inglis shared that he played a Kuwait concert earlier this summer alongside the Dead's founding and forever drummer Bill Kreutzman. At the end of this month, to recap, the Stephen Inglis Project will perform Hawaii Winterland on Maui and then ring in the new year with Deadheads at Oahu's Hawaii Theater. We'll share links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we check in with some of the survivors of the Maui wildfires. How's that housing hunt going? Give us some feedback. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation uh, anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 